invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, as we continue our short series on the Gospel of Matthew. I want to thank Callie for that magnificent rendition of A Holy Night. I, uh, as I was listening, you know, one of the, the beauties of heaven, I'm convinced, is the beauty of song. Uh, what could be better than the combination of beautiful music with magnificent words? Uh, we have such a treasure to sing about, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who reigns forever and forever. And in heaven, we get to sing like that um, with perfection. I, it's it's going to be magnificent. Tonight, we had a little taste of that. Let's, uh, let's give our attention to Rome, uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 2. This might not uh, sound like a Christmas story, but it is the story of Jesus' early childhood, and has a, um, Matthew is communicating again to his Jewish audience and to us the wonderful truth about this child that was born. So we're going to begin reading at verse 13, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So the Magi have come. We saw this morning they've, they've worshipped Jesus. And now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Lord Jesus, this is your word, this is your story, and we thank you that the Apostle Matthew has written it down for us, that we might see you, and seeing you, believe you, and love you, and trust you, worship you. And so Jesus, please, by your spirit tonight, may this not just be another message, another sermon, but Lord, may we hear the truth of God and, and see the wonder of Jesus and embrace him with all of our heart tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever missed out on an opportunity because you didn't really realize what you were looking at? I saw a news story uh, this past week of a, a lady in Virginia by the name of Jessica Vincent who uh, found a glass vase that looked nice at Goodwill and she bought it for $3.99 and took it home and became curious by some of the things she saw on the bottom of the vase, and so she tracked it down and brought it to a dealer, and of course it was worth $85,000. Um, somewhere, 
So that story hits the news, right? Somewhere there's somebody kicking themselves. Because <laughs> somebody was cleaning out, right, um, grandma's house after grandma died, or, or someone was just deciding to redo the living room and, uh, and put that thing in a box and, and gave it away to Goodwill, and they had no idea that they had been looking at $85,000. It was sitting right there in plain sight. And they had no idea. Completely missed it, boxed it up, gave it away. Happens all the time. Well, that's just money. What if you were lost in eternal death? Alienated from God, bound for an eternity of misery without God. And you had eternal life right in front of you, free for the taking. But you missed it. You never paid attention to it. You never saw it for what it was. Of all the misery that's in hell, I'm convinced that the most miserable people are, must be the people that had an opportunity. Jesus was right in front of them. Think, for instance, of the people that lived in Jesus' day. The people that heard about him, maybe saw him, maybe heard him speak, maybe even saw his miracles. But they never came to him for life. They were not reconciled to God through his blood. Uh, because, you see, they didn't really understand who he was and they didn't understand why he came. One of the great mysteries of the Bible, in fact, when we get back to the book of Romans, uh, we're going to start in Romans 9 and, and, and 10 and 11. Uh, Paul is dealing with this, this question. Why didn't the Jews recognize Jesus? How could they miss him? Why didn't they realize who he was? And the answer in part is because he didn't look like the Messiah they were expecting. Whoever gave that vase away gave it away because it didn't look like an $85,000 vase. It just looked normal. The Jews, you see did not flock to Jesus in part because they were expecting something else, something, something much more charismatic, something that had splendor to it, maybe some pomp and circumstance. They knew their Bible stories. They, they knew that the great leaders of Israel past had been notable in their youth. Moses, we're told, was a beautiful baby boy. Grew up in Pharaoh's household. All the knowledge and wealth of Egypt at his disposal. Very, very impressive young man. King David, we're also told, was a very handsome young man. First uh, Samuel 16, verse 12, tells us he was very handsome. Had beautiful eyes. He was a striking figure. And he had accomplished amazing feats of courage and strength. As a young boy, as a young teenager, he, he killed a lion with his bare hands. Well, that's what they thought a Messiah should look like. Someone impressive like that. Someone, uh, in fact, even more impressive than that. And, and Jesus was none of those things. Jesus was born into poverty and shame to a, an unwed peasant girl. Uh, the, the gospel writers don't tell us how Jesus looked, but the, the prophet Isaiah said that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing 
about Jesus that was impressive. He didn't have looks, didn't have wealth, didn't have status, didn't perform any feats of strength as a child. His childhood is instead defined by obscurity and humility. He just, he just didn't look like the Messiah that they were expecting. And, and Matthew understands that. As he's writing to his Jewish fellow men and women, Matthew understands the obstacles that they, they face in coming to faith. And, and so as Matthew tells the story, he doesn't hide these stories, but he brings them out front and, and shows that it is precisely the humility of Jesus that reveals Jesus as he really is and, and why he really came. And so we see here three stories, the flight to Egypt, uh, the tragedy of the murder of the children in Bethlehem, and then Jesus going back to live in Nazareth. And we're going to look at them just through these lens of the humility and the tragedy and the anonymity that defines Jesus' childhood. And then how Matthew helps us to see the truth about Jesus through these things. And so first, let's look at the humility as we see it in verse 13 through 15. So um, the Magi depart, and an angel comes and tells Joseph, you need to run. Because Herod is coming after the child to destroy the child. And so Mary and, and Joseph and this young toddler are on the run for their life. They leave all their friends behind. They leave family behind, possessions behind. They become just another refugee running for their life. It is a very unmessianic turn of events. This is supposed to be the son of David, right? The great warrior king. There's, there's supposed to be displays of power. He's supposed to defeat his enemies, not run from them. And yet, here he is as a lowly refugee with Mary and Joseph fleeing for his life. And you can imagine what sort of stumbling block that would have been to a Jewish reader. How can it possibly be that the Jewish Messiah is fleeing for his life from a pagan Herod running for security to pagan Egypt? That, that, it just makes no sense. It's entirely contrary to their expectations. A Jew would just look at that and scoff. It's a huge obstacle to faith. But Matthew marvelously shows that the flight is, uh, rather than being inconsistent or contrary to the Messianic prophecy, is actually a fulfillment of it. And so he quotes from the prophet Hosea, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Matthew has this understanding that God is orchestrating all the events of human history. And that in the history of the past, God was painting a picture to, to help people identify and understand the truth of Jesus, the Messiah. Hosea was prophesying about 750 years earlier. Hosea was a prophet. If you remember the story of Hosea, he's known for uh, God gave him a command to marry a prostitute, Gomer. Because Hosea was going to be a living illustration of God's relationship with adulterous Israel. And Hosea... Um, reminds the Israelites in his prophecy of God's grace to them in the past, in the days of Moses, when he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? And the answer is, you see, that Matthew is, is, is using this flight and, and the return to show who Jesus actually is. Jesus is the true Israel of God. And, and 
um, Jesus has come to do something that greater than Moses accomplished. Uh, the true Israel, you can just see that Jesus' path just follows the path of the patriarchs. This, this movement from Palestine to Egypt and then back to Palestine, well, that was the, that was the childhood of Israel in a sense. Abraham was in Palestine, wasn't he? He lived very near Bethlehem. And then um, Joseph, Abraham's descendants, Joseph and his family all go to Egypt because there's a famine. And then they're, for, they're there for a long, long time, 430 years. But then God calls them out of Egypt through the hand of Moses. And he leads them to a land of promise. And, and Matthew is saying... Jesus now fulfills all that that was pointing to. Because Jesus has come as a greater Moses to lead us out of, not the bondage to Egypt, but bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to hell. Jesus has come to lead us into a land of eternal promise. That's why he's come. But in order to lead us out of Egypt, he had to first go to Egypt. He had, he had to become like us in every way except without sin. And so the refugee event, rather than undermine the veracity of the messianic claims of Christ, they gloriously reveal his true identity as the promised and prophesied Savior of the world. Well, what about this this awful tragedy we read about in verse 16 and following. The story leads us back to Herod. Herod is this vicious, vile man who's outraged that the, the Magi have um, outwitted him. Um, they've, they've not complied with his evil wishes. Remember he said, I want you to come back and tell me when you find the child that I may go worship him. Well, worshiping him was the last thing, of course, on his mind. He, he wanted to kill him. And so in great rage, Herod orders that all the children, two-year-old and younger, that lived in the Bethlehem area be killed. Now again, um, this, is, this is not just Herod acting wickedly. This is, um, this is demonic activity. This is, right, in, in the book of Revelation, you read about the great dragon in Revelation chapter 12. Remember, the woman is about to give birth, and the dragon is waiting uh, so that he, uh, he might snatch that, that child up and kill it. And that's exactly what's happening here. This is Satan himself um, at work seeking to destroy the Christ child. Um, but the mothers in Bethlehem don't know that. All they know is that for no, no reason they could comprehend, Herod's soldiers showed up at, that, at their door and ripped their young boys from their arms and killed them for utterly no reason. It's, it's, a, it's a devastating tragedy. It's, it's just one more reason for Jews to abhor Roman rule. Now, this would have been a, another reason, of course, for Jews to doubt the claims of Christ. Right? The, the Messiah was supposed to come and put an end to Jewish suffering, not be the cause of it. And Jesus was, in some strange way, the cause of the death of these, of these babies. How, how in the world can this be the Jewish Messiah? But, but once again, Matthew, you see, uses Scripture to, to correctly see and view the events. And so he quotes from Jeremiah 31, one of the, the most well-known prophecies of, of the Old Testament. 
This was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her, her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Well, Jeremiah was writing about 600 years before the coming of Christ. And Jeremiah was writing to Judah, the, south, the, north, the uh, southern two tribes. And writing about Judah's deportation as they are taken away into the Babylonian captivity. So he speaks of Rachel, Jeremiah does, as the figurative mother, Rachel, of course, the wife of Joseph, Rachel, the figurative mother of Judah, and she's weeping with loud lamentation in Ramah because Ramah was the town on the border where the Babylonians gathered the captives and before they led them away. It was the deportation station. You can only imagine the, the weeping and the wailing that would have taken place as families are ripped apart. Loved ones are taken away never to return. Well, how does, how does that help? Well, it helps in the sense that Matthew places this tragedy in Bethlehem against the backdrop of God's redemptive purposes in history. Because you see, in Jeremiah 31, um, when Jeremiah talks about Rachel weeping in, in Ramah, immediately after that, he talks about God's blessing and God's promise. We, we have the promise of the new covenant there in the, in the very same prophecy, chapter 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, Matthew wants his Jewish readers to understand that tragedies are followed by mercies for God's people. And that the, the tragedy of the deportation into Babylon, as awful as that was, was followed by this magnificent promise that God was going to act and, and he was going to remove all the wickedness from his people. He was going to be their God and they were going to be his people and he was going to make a new covenant where he wrote that law on their heart. They'd never go into captivity again. And that's what every pious Jew prayed for and longed for. They were looking for the fulfillment of that, of that prophecy. And, and Matthew raises this text, this piece of scripture, and says it's, it's fulfilled. This is why Jesus came. This is God at work making us his people. This is God at work writing his law upon our heart. This is the new covenant in, in the person of Christ. The tragedy in Bethlehem, as awful as it is, is a portent of a coming triumph. God is at work, and he's at work in Jesus. There's another obstacle, and that's the obstacle of Jesus' anonymity. Uh, we're told that Joseph came back to Israel, and he was going to live in the, in the area near Jerusalem there, but Archelaus was uh, the ruler there, and, and, and Joseph was nervous, and so he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Well, that would be a stumbling block as well because a child's uh, hometown reflects upon his own person. He, he gets his name from his hometown. So, so Jews would have assumed that Jesus, the Messiah would have been called Jesus of Bethlehem, according to the prophecy, or, or better yet, Jesus of Jerusalem, Jesus of the holy city. That would be a real son of David. But Jesus of Nazareth, well... It's an awful name. Nazareth is Nowhereville. Jesus of Nazareth is, is about as far as you can get from a messianic name. 
It, nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? That's, that was, everyone knew this. So when in John 4, 1 verses 46, when a Philip comes and says to Nathaniel, hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, what does Nathaniel say? Can anything, anything good come out of Nazareth? You just can't believe this. this is, these are two thoughts that don't go together. Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, just sounds like an oxymoron. There's, there's, no, there's no pomp to it at all. Well, once again, we see the hidden, the hidden ways of God. You see, Jesus, uh, God led Jesus and his family to Nazareth precisely because of its despised and lowly status. Jesus was safe there. He could grow up in anonymity there. And, and, and that town, in a sense, defines Jesus. He fits there. His ministry fits there because, you see, this is, this is not going to be a, a king who comes riding on steeds and, and leads soldiers like David did. This is going to be a king who rides on a colt, right, a, a donkey, a, a king that is robed with humility. This fits him. And that seems to be the gist of what Matthew says when he says this, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's a lot of discussion about this because we don't know of any prophecy, specific prophecy in the Old Testament that says that, which is why Matthew doesn't quote it, right? There's no verse that he quotes here. Um, so either this is a prophecy that was sort of became uh, known uh, in the rabbinic community, or Matthew, it could be referring to the prophecy of Isaiah 11, which says a shoot in Hebrew, a nazer, will come from the stump of Jesse. Stump of Jesse. And, and that does communicate the idea. You see, a shoot is not a tree. It's a very small thing. It's a very weak thing. Very unimpressive thing. And it's very possible that Matthew is just referring back to that because that defines Jesus' ministry. He does, he does not come with, with strength. He comes with weakness. He comes with humility. Why? Because he's come to become a servant of men for the salvation of men. His humility, which was such a stumbling block to the Jews, was the point as he submits himself to the Father and, and bears the burden of our sin and suffers the judgment due to us for our guilt. And Jesus knew this, of course, about himself. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served like a king, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the Jews missed Jesus because they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah who would alleviate their suffering. They were looking for a Messiah that would affirm their righteousness as, right, the true people of God, the worthy ones. But that's not who Jesus was, and that's not why he came. And so they completely missed him. And people keep doing this today for very similar reasons. Jesus doesn't look like something that's impressive, something that's helpful. Do you realize that hell will be full of people who who went to church all their life and they, they lived with Jesus right in front of them, but they never embraced him. They never really saw him because he wasn't what they were looking for, right? There, there were people, there were, 
many people are looking for someone, Jesus, to alleviate human suffering. The whole health wealth movement is based on that premise. It's the fastest growing segment of the church, if you can call it a segment of the church. It's running rampant, like in, in, in South America, in Africa. It's this idea that, that God's goal in sending Jesus was to help alleviate your suffering. That's why he came. And Jesus has come to, to help you find wealth and, and health. And there, and there are countless preachers who, who will happily sell you that Jesus. Imagine their misery in hell when they realized that they were treating Jesus like a cheap vase. When all the riches and treasures of heaven were found in him. He was right there, right in front of them. They, they had his name on their lips. And they completely missed him. Never, never saw him. Never saw the beauty and the glory of the king of heaven who humbled himself all the way to death to atone for their sin and to give them the free gift of everlasting life. There are people that miss him in Reformed churches too. People who think of Jesus as the one who affirms our theological correctness or affirms our, the, our moral righteousness. And you can miss him completely that way. Jesus is just there to affirm you. You don't need to be affirmed. You need to be saved. I need to be saved. Can I just ask you a personal question? Like if it was just you and me sitting at a coffee shop? What do you see when you see Jesus? What are you looking for? Are you just looking for someone to help you make it through the day? Is that about it? Yeah, that, that, are your prayers kind of about that? Someone just to alleviate your troubles? Are you looking for someone to vindicate you? Your moral or religious worth? Or do you see Jesus as he is? You see this, this beautiful, glorious, gracious Savior of sinners. Is that what you see when you see Jesus? Do you see the fountain of life? Do you see the light of men, light of the world? Do you see the, the essence of joy and peace in him? Do you sense that he is the treasure of heaven, that, that nothing matters more than to know him to belong to him, to embrace him, to be saved by him? Friends, it is easy to miss Jesus, even right in church. That was a tragedy of the Jews. They went to the festivals, they went to the temple, they recited the prayers, but when Jesus came, they couldn't see him. I don't want that to happen to any of you. And so I'd just like you to ask yourself, do I really know this Jesus? Do I see him as he is? Do I realize the treasure that he is? Do I love him for that? Have I embraced him for that? Please, don't miss Jesus. Amen. Jesus, you are the joy of loving hearts. You are the fount of life. You are the light of men. And Jesus, each of us in our own ways 
miss you. We take you for granted. We, or we assume that you're to be in our life for other reasons, to help us on our journey, our agenda. And Lord, the truth is that so we so easily do not see you as the pearl of great price, the, the, the one thing in the world that's worth losing everything for so that we would happily sell everything just to have you. But Jesus, we confess our, our blindness and our ignorance and we, we, we beg that you would free us from it. Jesus, don't let us miss you. Please don't let us miss you. But give us eyes to see the beauty of, of the one who loved us and gave his life for us. And help us then, Jesus, by your spirit, to love you in return, to cherish you, to, to happily devote our life to knowing you and to serving you, to trusting you. And Jesus, we, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to see all the ways that we underestimate your value and worth and beauty and glory. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in this coming year, you would make us people who treasure Christ above everything, above possessions, above life itself, that we treasure Jesus. For he is the fountain of life. He's the source of all joy and peace. He is our God. And by his grace, we are his people. And we'll give you the thanks for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond by standing together and sing another Christmas carol, See Amid the Winter Snow. Hail thou ever blessed morn. Let's sing together.
I'm going to ask you a favor. Uh, after the benediction, I'd like to sing Silent Night, Holy Night. Can we do that? Now, I, and I reason, uh, verse 3, Silent Night, Holy Night. This is 2.10. Uh, Son of God, that's who Jesus is. Love's pure light, that's Jesus. Radiant beams from thy holy face with a dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. It just helps us as we close out. Remember who Jesus is. Wonder star, lend thy light. So we'll sing the first verse, the third verse, and the fourth verse. One, three, and four of Silent Night. And we all know the first verse, so if it takes them a while to come up with it, that's okay. Let's receive the benediction. As you go now into the world, that, uh, into the week that God has called you to, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Let's sing.